0: everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, once again, agorasnexus.com and Vandelay Industries, premier sponsor of the Used Guys in that podcast. With us today is a published author and a friend of ours, a, a personal friend, um, on the family Facebook friend. Um, you know, Sal Mayweather has already written something that is on the Use Guys in that book warehouse. I have it right here, but there is a new book that Sal has authored and I'm so excited To hear about it. Um, You know, typically, Sal, when people hear the word revisionism, historical revisionism, there's a couple of scopes that we can look at this, or lenses, I guess you can say. One of them is typically, like, one would consider, like, to be a dangerous departure from the teachings of Karl Marx, because revisionism is usually attributed to folks that are, like, hey you're taking this uh, this this doctrine and you're you know messing with that was a big split between Stalin right. and Mao, let's say right but in this case this is something that we're it's an advocacy for taking a look again at long standing interpretations of history reviewing them and seeing hey a lot of this we were either information was withheld or new stuff has come up new research because as a social science just like a hard science right The science is going to change. It is never settled. Why? Because of new information that comes to light and how we've been fucking lied to all of our lives, especially those of us that were in the public schools, that were taught a certain line of thinking. Tell us about this awesome new book. Let's get started straight away with the title and how you started out on this work.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. It's always great to be back on this show. love you guys. Um, It was... uh, It's sort of like... I don't know how to describe it, really. It's one of those things, like, as, like, a, a um, as, like, a poli-sci student, like, and throughout, even throughout grad school and stuff, it was always in the back of my head, like, that there was this underlying narrative, so, like, historical narrative that got us here, and this book is sort of, like, I've, I've like, finally put it in print, um, and I think that, to go answer your question, I think that in the, in the In terms of libertarianism, uh, revisionism refers to the unmasking of excuses used for war making. And that's that's a definition that Ralph Rako used, the great libertarian, revisionist historian. Um, But, yeah, you're essentially right. We have been lied to. And the point I make in the book is that um, the state sort of has to maintain this grand fiction that they have, uh, you know, safeguarded our liberty and they're going abroad to other countries and spreading democracy in order to do that they have to have they have to at least embellish and at times outright lie about the nature of historical events and the purpose of of this book the american experiment is to unmask those lies so to speak and the title the american experiment comes from the idea that you know uh the greeks the Greeks originally tried their hand at limited government with democracy that mm-hmm. failed Asked Socrates, the Romans tried their hand at limited government that failed, right? Asked Caesar. And sort of when it was our turn, the American founders sort of got together and said, well, you know, what? we're going to, there was something to that Greek democracy and there was something to that Roman republicanism. So we'll sort of fuse elements of the two together mm-hmm. and we'll have this sort of federal constitutional republic. And uh, again, the argument in the book is that that failed and that failed at Vicksburg in 1863 uh, or uh, 62, I'm sorry. And uh, that was sort of every, everything since then has sort of been on, on a, a decline in terms of freedom and liberty.
0: I think that that's a very compelling argument. What is it about? Let me go ahead and start with this. I, I don't know why this needs to be said, but full. Full disclaimer, while I can't always speak for everybody, I can say everybody on this podcast, including our guests, thinks that it's morally reprehensible to own human beings. Nobody's advocating for that. That's fucking awful. Okay? Slavery is absolutely zero, no good, not acceptable. Why is it? Now, by the way, before I jump into this question, I would like to make a point. The communist state of Maryland... Uh, with its shitty cities of Baltimore, for example, and half of Washington, D.C.'s asshole. Okay, <laughs> just disgusting, terrible. They target people coming across the border from Pennsylvania to arrest concealed carry holders so they could throw you in jIT. We looked it up. It's actually something they do. Um, so it's a horrible communist state. It's also the place where Duncan Lemp was assassinated by the police, okay, which we still have seen no justice from that. But many people might wonder, How did Washington, D.C. survive being surrounded by two, quote, slave states? Well, that's a very interesting thing, see, because Mr. Lincoln, who is the great hero and the founder of the Republican Party, uh, was a big advocate for the freedom of, of human beings to no longer be shackled, unless you were in Maryland. If you were in Maryland, it wasn't really a problem, because why, Sal? Was Mr. Lincoln really interested in emancipating human beings because of his own altruistic beliefs? Or what was his real goal during the war between the states?
1: He could care less about emancipating anyone. He said it out. There's a quote, yeah. <laughs> On multiple occasions, he's 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 just flat out said it, especially during the Lincoln Douglas debates. Like back in the day, they would have these long Drawn out, like knockdown, out debates that would go on for hours and hours and hours. And if you go back and read the debates, you know at the time you're looking at you know this is in 18 you know 60 election, uh, you're campaigning in 1859. No one is going to get elected on a platform of racial equality. Right. Everybody in the country, north, south, east and west, everybody's racist at this time. OK, no one believes in racial equality in America at this point. You are you will not get you'll be laughed off of stage if you if you said that. So naturally, Abraham Lincoln tries to appeal to the the white supremacist voter, which is everybody. And uh, t- in order to do that, he can't really go against uh, slavery. His argument at the time is not that he's opposed to slavery. His argument is is really at the time, his argument is that he's opposed to extending slavery westward into the Kansas territories. But uh, see, what he would tell the public is it's not about, um, and I think there's a quote in the book from uh, his secretary of state, William Seward, who says, it's not out of an unnatural sympathy for the Negro that we oppose moving slavery westward, but rather out of maintaining that land for free white labor. Right. They were concerned that if slavery entered the Western territories, the white labor would not be able to compete with it. Nobody would want to hire white people because black people would be working for free. Even that was a lie. Even that was a lie. OK, that was just an excuse to tell the voters in reality. Because of the uh, three fifths uh, clause, the Dred Scott decision, where uh, a, a black person, a slave was considered only three fifths of a person in terms of uh, apportionment for congressional representation. If slavery moved westward, then Democrats at the time would have the upper hand in those territories, right, because slave those slaves would be counted. That's why the Republican Party opposed moving slavery westward. Um, but you know in terms of the emancipation proclamation it only applied to the states in rebellion right the, the northern states still kept their slaves this is what this is one of the key things that people don't know or or information that was withheld in public school that people weren't aware of northern states had slavery too okay they they had it after lincoln was dead they had slaves okay so lincoln was shot and killed and buried and they had slaves still OK, it wasn't until there was a constitutional amendment later on that, you know, that, that got rid of all of that. But um, yeah, again, where Lincoln had the ability to free them, he left slaves in bondage and, and every opportunity that he had to uh, that he could have freed them. He denied them that opportunity. Another example of it is when General Fremont uh, was he occupied the state of Missouri and he issued an executive order. Uh, basically saying every slave in the state of Missouri is henceforth free. Lincoln was reading the newspaper and he found out about it because there was an article in the paper and he was like furious. He couldn't believe it. So he sent a rebuke to Fremont and uh, he said there's no there's no charge in the Constitution to allow for this to happen. Like you can't just take property from tens of thousands of people. Uh, There's no constitutional warrant for this. It's something like that. Um. Fremont was really upset about it, and his wife actually went to Washington to meet with Lincoln, and there was like some sort of discussion about Fremont sort of breaking away from Lincoln and sort of forming a, a, his own country in the West. You got to remember, at the time, Washington DC and Missouri, when there's no, you know, there's no internet, there's no telephone, mm-hmm. it's like a, a world away. So you know, it's it's sort of like Fremont was almost like considered breaking away from Lincoln at the time. But Lincoln uh, played the situation pretty masterfully in terms of politics. And he was able to get Fremont to respect that his his reversal and all of those blacks who were freed, all of those slaves who were freed for just a couple days or weeks were now were forced back into chains. Another example of Lincoln just literally forcing free blacks into slaves. He also would enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. If you were if you were a, a slave in the and this was after after secession, after the Civil War broke out, like if you were a slave caught in the north, if you were an escaped slave and you ran to the north and US marshals caught you, they would bring you back. And there's even I, th- I think I even include an example in the book of that actually happening, like them crossing into the, the Confederate the CSA and returning a slave to uh, to Virginia.
2: So What they just get amnesty for that, like hey, we're crossing into what's technically hostile territory, but we're bringing you a slave that ran away, so it's all good,
1: more or less. Yeah, more or less, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly, uh, that's incredibly sad. And I believe that's where, isn't that where uh, badges came from as far as law enforcement was concerned, was to catch runaway uh, slaves, yeah,
1: slave patrols, yeah, yeah, another aspect of the Emancipation Proclamation that people aren't aware of, that they don't teach you in school, is that this is the genesis of, of, of racism in, in our society. This is mm-hmm. where uh, that that sort of Southern racist, white supremacy, Ku Klux Klan vibe comes from. It's the Emancipation Proclamation. The reason why was because, and this is really the key, the, Eman- the Emancipation Proclamation is the key to understanding everything, really. They were losing the war. The North was, losing, was, was, was just losing. Uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson, Forrest, they were kicking ass. These guys were kicking ass and taking names later. And the idea was that if they could change the war from a political crusade to a moral crusade, then Northern soldiers would be emboldened with the moral wherewithal, the moral fortitude to start targeting civilians. Mm-hmm. And that was what they needed to change the course of the war. Lincoln said as much. He said, "This is going to be a, the character of the war will change. This will be one of subjugation." It was what he told a, an, an official with the Interior Department, and it was. It was. Um, once the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, then that's when Vicksburg happened, and that's when that's when that's when everything, all the dominoes started to fall into place, and as a result of all of that. During Reconstruction, a government, the Northern the northern Republicans imposed upon the South, a government of mainly Northern opportunists, carpetbaggers, mm-hmm. and freed Blacks who they knew would vote in line with Republicans. That created an enormous air of resentment among the white people in the South. Yes, remember, in the antebellum South and before the Civil War, whites and Blacks lived together, right? They grew up together. Uh, there would be white babies on uh, uh, with with a black nurse. Um, the you know obviously there was slavery, so there wasn't equality or anything like that. But they were they 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 were part of the same civil society. After Reconstruction, when the northern troops left, they inst the southerners instituted these Jim Crow laws to counter. All of that Reconstruction policies to get rid of the northern carpetbaggers and the, the the freed blacks who were voting in line with the Republican Party. They that's why they had Jim Crow laws and those Jim Crow laws are what created the racism that lasted until the 1950s or 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even alive in some parts of the South today, but uh, it all stems from that Emancipation Proclamation, though.
0: That's fascinating. What is now? I'm going to ask you to put on your um, what-if cap, uh, perhaps a tinfoil one. The result: let's say that things go absolutely terribly for the Union, and at Gettysburg on July 5th, let's say 1863, uh, Little Round Top is taken, the Northern Army is smashed. Um, you know, there's there is no Sherman's March to the Sea. Grant uh, doesn't do what he's supposed to do, or has done. What does the world look like then? Because the argument put forth is that, oh, well, slavery would have continued, for example. And my understanding, and I just want to get your take on it as someone who has done the research for this project, my take on that would have been that external pressures, in order, for example, if you think of apartheid South Africa, they were basically forced to stop being assholes because people wouldn't engage in commerce with them. They were like, they were boycotted into, like, you know, allowing. Um, you know, black African folks to ride the same goddamn bus as white people. You know what I mean? Like, because shit was not not very nice there either. Uh, but in your, in your research, or at least, what do you think would have been a result of a CSA victory? Do you think that uh, equality would have been achieved somehow? Do you think that the institutions that were in place at the time would have lasted a lot longer, let's say, past when uh, Brazil uh, emancipated slaves in the 1880s? Uh, what is your take on that? What What do you think might have happened?
1: Well, Lincoln, uh, personally, he, his proposal was to slowly phase it out until like 1920 or something like that. And that would have, that would have pushed it out like another like 60 years or something like that. Um, but no, I don't think it would have lasted that long for a number of reasons. Number one, only in America did slavery have to end violently. Right. It ended in England peacefully, ended in Brazil and every other place except for with the one exception, of course, being Haiti. Everywhere else in the Western Hemisphere, it ended peacefully. Right? Why was it that only in America did it have to end with a civil war? Um, there was plenty of other uh, ways to go about it, including compensated emancipation, which was one of the most popular proposals. That's how it was done in England. All of the slaveholders were paid off by the government and their slaves were set free um but i think that it was an, an inevitability and uh one of my other sort of separate research interests is geopolitics like like political geography one of the reasons one of the ways geo one of the reasons one of the ways political geographers explain the civil wars by saying slavery's march westward was halted by the dry arid climate right it was inconducive to the sort of farming and agriculture that was that was more commonly used with with slaves, right? So that sort of put a halt to the the expansion of slavery. Um, but no, I think that over time it would have absolutely ended. I mean, there's no slavery ar- around today in the, in the modern Western world. There's no reason to suggest that it would still be around uh, otherwise. And I think that a lot of Southerners at the time were opposed to slavery, right? Robert E. Lee said he, Robert E. Lee was personally opposed to slavery, but he said, if I could free every slave, I would. Um, So no, I don't think that slavery would have continued, but you know, the question, what would the world look like today is much deeper than just in terms of slavery. And I think that um, really we would have all been a lot better off because that was the true America, right? This decentralized, Federalist uh, palette of of sort of different ideas coming from state legislatures and stuff like that but that all changed and that that we we lost that in, at Appomattox and that sort of paved the way for the centralization of government and the the world wars um the the bloodshed all the, the cold War all the horrors of the 20th century that's all the result of the Civil War it all comes down to that. And the other sort of tie that binds here is, um, I'm sure as you know, Bismarck's centralization of German principalities going on at the same time. Those two events introduced Western peoples to such horror, such bloodshed, that it really primed them up for World War I and World War II. The third way I think that things would probably be different would be in terms of the constitution. Southern states were... Uh, wanted um, the Southern constitution was a little bit different. There was going to be no tariffs, number one. And the president was to serve one six year term, which I think is both of those things, in my opinion, are absolutely brilliant. First of all, if we had a South that had no tariffs, it was essentially a free trade zone. Northern ports, New York city, Philadelphia, Boston would ha- would have a choice. Either they could eliminate their tariff or they could just go out of business, right? Because Anybody, any ship or any manufacturer would choose to use, you know, Charleston, New Orleans or something like that, or Atlanta and move their goods northward via rail or via land or something like that. So I think having a free trade zone in the South would have been sort of revolutionary. Could you imagine the, like the economic revolution that would occur if we had no, if we had a free trade zone in America, I mean, it would be unlike anything we've ever heard of before. Um. So, yeah, I think it would be wildly different. I think it would be a a positive, obviously. I think the constitution, the way it was written, was meant for – I think the southern states, the constitution that they fought for was the one that the founders wrote. And I think it was sort of usurped by financial elite interests um, when Abraham Lincoln and his lobbyist elite banker friends sort of took over.
0: I find these to be fascinating uh, points, uh, you know, especially when we're looking at the historical record and what you just said about these financial elites and also thinking back to, you know, uh, a real confederation, which is supposed to be kind of what was started out here after the Revolutionary War, at least with the Articles, right, because that's, that was the gripe of the elite, you know, that showed up in Philadelphia to uh, fix the, the the Articles of Confederation and just came out with the Constitution instead. Exactly. Fuck it. Right. Yeah, so I, I always like to think of the what-ifs. It's something that we can kind of contemplate and see, you know, you know, perhaps take in one direction or another. And the problem I feel like, and I don't know if you have the, a similar sentiment on this, but a discussion like this in an open forum or at least in an academic setting especially in a public school or any school for that matter for a youth to come forward with, you know, let's say they read your book. Okay. One would hope let's say they read the book and then they present this to their teacher or the professor, whoever. I mean, I think you would be effectively tarred and feathered (laughs) by someone because, and the problem that I have with this, because it's not open discourse, the idea, because the ideas that are being put forth here are not conspiracy theories. We, mm-hmm. we we can actually look at the historical record when it comes to this. And the thing is, is that through, I mean, what, 1865 is when uh, it was April of 1865 is when Lincoln was assassinated, right? So from that point till now, we have essentially a deification of Mr. Lincoln, right? He has been completely deified in stone. He's been deified on the currency. Literally. Yeah, literally. Um, he, he is the, the great martyr. All right. And and it's because why? I mean, I know that that phrase is very cliche, but there's a lot of truth to it that the victors do write the history books, right? We don't get this other side. I don't know if school children in Charleston, South Carolina, get a different story. South Carolina is very bellicose to begin with. Um, A lot of folks don't uh, know or don't remember, at least they weren't taught, that before uh, Fort Sumter, uh, they wanted to leave the Union. During the Jackson administration, and Mr. Jackson had to ride down with his goddamn horse in the army to right. say, "Hold the fuck on a minute, you're not going anywhere." And this was a Southern president uh, from Tennessee, I believe. Um, you know, I, I, there are so many elements to this entire situation that it's not just cut and dry. That it's it was about slavery, and the argument is people get hung up on it. It's, well, what what do you think it was about? Well. Yes, slavery is an element that we cannot ignore, that it is a part of the story. However, the argument of the state's rights versus the supremacy of the federal state it was a battle that was also had out to the tune of 600,000 Americans dying, still the costliest war that this country has endured. Uh, as far as you know, human beings—not so much in the fight I mean, I can only imagine and calculate the cost of the destruction of all of the South that took place. Right, sacking of Atlanta. You know, that's you know <clears throat> the Sherman's march to the sea. People forget what that march entailed. I mean, he didn't go for a walk. You know, right. I mean, it wasn't yeah. a stroll. So, I—what is it about this particular point in our history that drew you in? Like, when did you first begin to hear these things? I mean, you're an educated individual. When did you really hear about these things? How were you introduced to this particular topic that you cover in your book?
1: So it's not really; it's just sort of where the research led me. Um, it, it just sort of sort of happened. It just sort of happened naturally. Um, none of this started with Lincoln, by the way. Um, you mentioned Jackson, and that's completely true. That whole um, enforcement of the tariff of abominations—he tried to get Congress to pass the Force Bill. Before him, we had Washington uh, with the whiskey tax uh, ride into Pennsylvania legally, and uh, Lincoln relied on both of those precedents when he invaded the South. And without those two men doing that, it would have been really difficult for him to get away with that, right? So, um, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't start with him. And again, going back to another thing that you mentioned was the Articles of Confederation right? When, when Alexander Hamilton and Robert Morris sort of spent 10 years plotting to overthrow the constant, the articles of confederation and impose a more centralized form of government, the U S constitution. And they eventually got their way. And they even got a central bank out of the deal. Um, which of course was, you know, handed to Robert Morris, right? It was basically ran by his, his best friend, Thomas Willing, mm-hmm. And uh, it was a, it was a general shit show. It was a general shit show. And, and that continued. And uh, up until 1865, the people sort of had enough power to sort of push back those, that bank got abolished, although they came back again with, with number two, that one got abolished. But um, at the end of the day, um, it came, it was really about the tariff, not necessarily about, and it was about who's paying the tariff, right? So, uh, the tariff kept getting raised in 1828 with the Tariff of Abominations, which is where uh, South Carolina says, screw you, we're done, we're not paying. Andrew Jackson says, the hell you aren't. Sends uh, an armada to to South Carolina to force them to pay. Um, cooler heads prevail, fortunately. Um, and what happens is Congress actually lowers their tariff rate, right? So, so nullification worked. Right. So South Carolina used the at the time, another aspect of all of this is it, very complicated, but another aspect of this is like what role the Supreme Court should play. And uh, it was never the intention of the founding fathers for nine people dressed up in bat suits to be the final arbiters of constitutional law. That's a joke. If you told Jefferson that, he would be like, what? he would pull his hair out. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um Instead, it was meant for the states. It was meant to be kicked back to the states. And if the states thought something was unconstitutional, they would just not enforce it. Right. They would just say, all right, well, that, we're not going to do that. We're not doing this one because that, that's not part of what we agreed to. That's called nullification. That's what South Carolina did in 1828 with the tariff of abominations. And it worked. That's what the American system was designed to do. It was used the way it was designed to be used. And it worked. Congress relented. They said, OK, we're not going to rob you guys as bad as we were. Um but they kept pushing and they kept pushing and they kept pushing. And eventually they raised tariff rates again. Uh, and South Carolina said, you know what? That's it. We're done. We're we're done. And Lincoln gets elected. Lincoln promises he's going to raise tariff rates even higher, which he does. And as soon as he gets elected, South Carolina is like, see so yeah, it. We're done. That's it. No more. And the, he wasn't even in office, Lincoln. It was still Buchanan at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's when all the dominoes started to fall like Southern secession happened before Lincoln was even in office. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a very complicated story, but I think it's sort of all like you you can, there's a thread that you can follow the whole way through. And that's, that's what I try to do in in, in the book.
0: Fantastic. And, you know, to follow up with that, here's an additional question. Of course, I, I have my opinion on this and I'd like to get yours. Uh, One of the results of this, uh, of the Civil War, you, you know, talked about nullification and not utilizing the Supreme Court, that that was not the original intent uh, under uh, the Constitution, let's say, uh, for the Supreme Court to be ruling on what is unconstitutional or constitutional, uh, that the states would just automatically reject it. Because at least prior to 1861, it seemed like the states were way more sovereign. Over their own affairs, as opposed to in 1865, after, you know, Mr. Lincoln gets himself a moonroof at the Ford Theater. uh, (laughs) Do you think that the not the idea, but the actual subordination of the states, because I've made the argument that in some ways it's they've become vassals vassals of Mm. their their higher lords, so in a way it's kind of like this neo-monarchist system that we have because the states are now dependent upon uncle sugar's federal dollar and if they don't play ball they don't get federal dollars so where's the sovereignty even though the states will flex and say we you know we're sovereign over our own affairs it's like yeah but you but are you really are you really because you know if you're dancing for the dollar i mean I mean, who's who's the John and, you know, and who isn't the John? You know what I mean? So, like, I, in a way, that's also something that I, I feel like we, as a result of the Civil War in this country, where you don't have, like, the vestiges or any real power with the states is, is completely wiped away. I mean, the only time we see a real open rebellion, Sal... Is when it comes to marijuana laws. <laughs> you that's, read my
2: fucking mind. That's <laughs> right.
0: only, and way, even then, the DEA
2: like they crash yeah, they, that shit whenever they want.
0: That's right. They rob semi trailers with money that are supposed to be going to banks, and the banks won't do business with you. Then there's tax evasion, and there's Uncle Sugar gets a cut no matter what. But I think if we start following, you know, the the, the historical trail going back. I really feel that this is one of those results, the inevitable result of the supremacy of the federal state over the subjugated states. Even the states like, for example, Ohio or Pennsylvania or any of the northern states who fought uh, for the union were also subjugated along with the southern states. It was just a natural progression.
1: One thousand percent. And honestly, it it takes a... um you have to have a, a really solid understanding of the civil war to get that point, because it's not something that's obvious. It doesn't jump out at you. You have to really know your shit to understand that. Um, the way I would explain it is this. Abraham Lincoln was as, as Tom DiLorenzo calls him, the father of crony capitalism. And um, that's sort of Alexander Hamilton was pushing for this shit. This, this crony cap making as you as you call it, making the States beholden to the federal government by the dollar Hamilton was pushing for this since day one, since day one. And it was finally put into place with Abraham Lincoln. Um, And the way he did it was, again, Lincoln was this well-known, he was the nation's number one corporate lobbyist for the big railroads before becoming president. And once he became president, um, he pushed through the Pacific Railway Act, which was one of the most corrupt, pieces of legislation in american history and uh basically if you like look at like a, a, a like the way it was doled out was like really crooked like you were paid a certain amount um for like you know every like mile or every like stretch of track you put down so like this, the 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 rails would be like zigzagged and stuff so that the, the contractors would get more money and stuff. It was really, <laughs> and like congressmen would only vote for it if it like went through their district. So it would have to go through all like loopy ways to hit every congressional district. Holy shit. It was, it was, it was just an absolute shit show. But that's where it all started. It all starts with Lincoln and crony capitals. And that's where all of this shit starts. And then in the progressive era, as we move on, it gets even worse and worse and worse. With Wilson and Roosevelt, and, and even in today, it's, I mean, today, it's just absolutely awful. But the key point of all of this is that if you look at the Constitution as it's written, there's no warrant whatsoever. There's no charge in the Constitution that allows for the federal government to loan money out or to grant money to anybody for any reason whatsoever. And this is per, this is exactly why because they knew it would make interest beholden to political factions, and they didn't want that to happen. And and Lincoln fought relentlessly for it. And I I talk about the Pacific Railway Act in the book. Um, It was was really, uh, it was this crony capitalist move that was done, really. It was only done to enrich Lincoln's friends, but he, the excuse was that California and Oregon were not really abiding by the Lincoln's banking policy. Lincoln had instituted these greenbacks. the West Coast, they were fresh off the gold rush. They had no interest in dealing with paper money. Mm-hmm. They were at, they forbade it constitutionally. The, the state constitution of California at the time made paper money illegal. Oregon adopted a similar measure. Lincoln started to worry that they were going to secede as well, or at least that was the excuse that he used when justifying his railroad. And uh, yeah, that's that's where it all started. That's where it comes from. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head.
0: Okay, I and thank you for... Um for elaborating and uh, giving a little bit more context to that point. But uh, that's something that's always at least sat with me even before I had a complete understanding, or maybe not even a complete, uh, but just at least a suspicion that this is, you know, probably the way uh, it, it was designed. For sure. For, you know what I mean? So, and I thank you for all of that detail that you gave on this uh, terribly tragic event that took place in this country that um, in many ways um, we are still feeling the ramifications of. Now, what other things... Would you like to talk to us about that we were not taught and we were lied to? Um, that um, maybe that uh, maybe not this audience, all seven and a half of them, bless them all. <laughs> um, But perhaps a wider audience would be completely
3: We gained flummoxed. three more.
0: Yeah, we did go up by three. Thank you for keeping an eye on we the always metrics. say four. I always say 4.7 <laughs> 4. or some shit like we gotta that. We
2: got to keep like a stock tracker or something, um, like a little green line or red there's, line. Like...
0: There's three Amazon workers that got fired. They're like, I got nothing to do, so <laughs> listen to this guy. Um But um what other lies have been propagated that have been force-fed to the population that – you talk about it in your book that many may not be aware of.
1: Oh man. Oh man. So many. Um, so, so many. I, basically, light, man. I, my, my general philosophy is that if the government says it's true, it's probably a lie. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, I, I would bet it's a lie. Um, I guess just moving like chronological order, you know, there's stuff I didn't cover in the book too, that happens, which is an outright lie and it's all bullshit, of course, um you know I didn't, I didn't really get time to get into uh like the Spanish-American War or anything like that but that was all bullshit. Um but the election of uh 1912 was in fact a banker coup. And people don't this is this is one of the key events in American history that people don't know because we've been intentionally this information has been intentionally withheld from you. You're not supposed to know it. But in 1912, bankers had a coup d'etat where they seized control of the American government and they've held it ever since. That sounds like I've got my tinfoil hat on. It sounds like (laughs) I'm talking crazy to you, but I promise you it's the truth. And here's how it happens. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, he had retired and he was off in Africa hunting animals and rhinos and all sorts of beautiful animals that you probably shouldn't kill. But there he was, and he had a self, a handpicked successor, uh, Taft, in the White House, and the uh, financially lead at the time, essentially the who were consisted of two camps, Morgan and Rockefellers, and that's a whole another story we can get into. like
2: murdering everybody on the titanic (laughs) yeah man it's even worse it's even
1: worse than that but this sort of they literally formed the cabal of elites and the american wing of the cabal was headed by the morgans and the rockefellers and they decided it's time to have a central bank in america Mm -hmm. and uh they knew that a progressive would be willing would be on board with it but howard or william Howard taft was not as progressive as they wanted him to be, and he was not going to be on board with the central bank. So, their plan, Morgan and Rockefeller, their plan was to uh, have Teddy Roosevelt run again and mm-hmm. sort of split the Republican vote. So, all the republic, some Republicans would vote for Taft, some would vote for Roosevelt. But if they could find a Democrat who was who was progressive enough to sign off on their central bank, then they could sort of assure that either that that Democrat would win or Roosevelt would win. So they got Wilson to run and they had, they convinced Roosevelt to challenge Taft for the Republican nomination. Taft won the nomination. So George Perkins, one of Morgan's closest friends and allies, convinced Roosevelt to form the Bull Moose party, a third party and to run anyway, which he did. And who funded that campaign, but morgan and the rockefellers um they also managed it and and they ran it from the ground up roosevelt for his part had no idea he was being used until later on but the plan worked right roosevelt and taft split the republican vote wilson won became the president who was a literal uh sociopath and a psychopath at the same time and um That was, he was probably the only one to come close in terms of Lincoln to, to doing the damage to this country was Woodrow Wilson, which was a result of that banker coup. So that was probably the next biggest thing I think that people don't understand was that election of 1912 and like the direction that that pushed the country in. That's one thing that I think has sort of been withheld from us.
0: I'm so glad that you brought that up and gave uh, even more context because, Woodrow Wilson is the devil and uh, I mean I'm not even saying that <laughs> That's an that understatement. <laughs> if there is a hell and I'm not quite convinced that there is one if he's not He's there. Oh, he better be. I mean, he really better be. And it it boils more like, you know, it's not only the Federal Reserve Act and the coup that you just described. But this this is an individual who catapulted this country into, in my opinion, uh, the uh, civilization ending uh, conflict that was World War One. like Mr. Vonnegut, who is over my left shoulder over here, says that uh, civilization ended in World War One, and we've never recovered. And in many ways, in fact, in all ways, I have to agree with him that it really is uh, something that uh, is just, it, it really ended everything for us. Um, you know, not just so much on the battlefield, but think about this, during the 1916 presidential election, which the devil was running for office and it was no guarantee the one thing that he used to to win if we're counting votes here is he told the american people who are love to be suckers for whatever reason um he kept us out of the war that was his campaign slogan when did the lusitania sink uh the lusitania sunk in 1915 i think okay I think. Angel, could you look up when the Lusitania uh, was put down off the coast of Ireland? Because that was like a big kicker, right? That was like
2: Pearl Harbor before Pearl Harbor?
0: Not so much in the body or, count because well, L- No, but like as far as motivation went, like... you got to look at the statistics that the German you know, Ju- U-boats were killing, like I mean sinking tons, oh tons yeah. of shipping uh, before the,
3: the Lusitania was scheduled to arrive in Liverpool on March 6th of 1915 um, but in she had um said that she had uh sorry the linkedin page i clicked on it and it's taking a second to load that's okay and then it asked me to give him money. So um, We're not, doing anything, <laughs> not in the goddamn budget. It said that a, a torpedo struck, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then a second explosion occurred inside the ship, which then sank in only 18 minutes.
0: And why? Why did the German Navy target that ship? Oh, mistaken that, identity, right, or something? Uh, or, no, 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 like, no. Like that's what I was t- like. Now, uh, once again, more, more lies, more lies right. being uh, the United States government was sending arms to keep the fucking British and the French fresh with shells and bullets and all sorts of other stuff. On
1: civilian ships.
0: On civilian oh. ships. And the civilian passenger ships. Correct. Yeah, your life means nothing. That in would German be like,
1: ships. imagine what? if they packed a ferry boat full of guns for Ukraine and sent you across the map. Yeah, that's basically what they did. Um, and it's actually a lot worse than that. It's actually the truth of the. It's actually sick and disgusting, to be honest with you, because Germany um, said, "Hey, look, guys, you can't be sending over munitions on civilian passenger ships. We're gonna. There's gonna be a lot of dead innocent people." And Wilson was like, "I, we're not, I didn't hear that. You know, I'm, I'm call their bluff. Attention. Like, all right, see
2: if they have it in them
1: to kill the civilians." So too, Germany, buddy. so Germany took out ads in American newspapers and said, "Everybody." stay off of the lusitania because guess propaganda what, you know, though
2: like <laughs> there's a bunch of
1: bunch of bombs that we're, we're going to blow it up once it gets close enough so just don't mm-hmm. go on this boat Woodrow Wilson had the advertisement censored from all american newspapers <laughs> see and there's actually it actually got through the censors into one i think there was one paper in like iowa or something like that who carried it and it's actually like there's like a f- couple framed, like it's framed in like a, like a museum somewhere, I'm sure. But it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's it's such a joke how it happened. But even that, even the Lusitania, and there was like over 100 dead Americans, mm-hmm. even that wasn't sufficient to draw the American people into war. They were still opposed to the war. Mm-hmm. They were still opposed to the war. So like Jay said, when, when Wilson ran for uh, re-election in 1916, the 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 whole slogan the theme of his of his campaign was he kept us out of the war the whole time it was decided though that once i won ha- one, once i win reelection though we're going to get into this war and yeah, it wasn't just do it it wasn't just wilson by the way um morgan and the the cabal morgan had lent hundreds of millions of dollars to France, England, and Russia. He was funding both sides of the- The war. Rockefellers
2: owned fucking Remington arms and were giving guns to the fucking Germans and the Russians.
1: So it's like, so so, in order for their investment to pay off, they needed to have this like decisive war. And the and it really, the sad thing about World War One is that it should have just been like a little skirmish in Eastern Europe that nobody remembers. And it's like, what was the name of that thing in 1916 again? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd have to like look up some obscure history book to learn about it. But the British could not, they just could not keep their hands idle. Like if if they if there's a chance to redraw the world map in their favor, the British military is is moving, is moving. And that's what happened. Lawrence of Arabia. Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, essentially. But um, they got involved and that's what sort of tipped the scales. That's what sort of changed it from this like skirmish into a continental war. And like mm-hmm. even that would have been a more equitable negotiated treaty among among equals, a more lasting, stable treaty. Mm-hmm. But they actually started agitating the Americans to get involved in the war in order to have such a decisive victory that they could impose terms on the rest of Europe. And the way that they did this was by monopolizing uh, propaganda in the United States relating to World War One. The first move was to cut German cables, transatlantic cables running to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So at this and now once they once they did that successfully, they essentially had a complete monopoly. Any information about the the war in Europe getting into America ran through uh, British censors. And well, sure as shit, would you guys believe all of a sudden? These terrible things that they started doing in Belgium, the Germans, these terrible Belgian atrocities committed by German troops upon neutral Belgian farmers. The Schlieffen Plan called for German troops to invade France by crossing the Belgian plain Mm -hmm. because in the the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, they took the other route. So they were thinking, well, they're going to be waiting for that. So this time we're going to go through Belgium. Mm -hmm. Well, there was apparently, and and this... Whether this is true or not is actually debated, but there was apparently some old treaty in England that the English had signed with Belgium that stated, in the event that your sovereignty is ever violated, we will come to your defense. From what I understand, that has been overblown, but I haven't looked into it as much as I probably should. But in any case that was the excuse for the English to to jump into the war. And that's when we started getting these, this news of these Belgian atrocities. Turns out the Belgian atrocities were completely made up. They were completely, it was a lie. None of it was actually true. They were staged in opera houses in Paris and in other European cities. Um, But that's what, and we're talking like, you know, remember Saddam's babies in incubators? Same shit. It was the exact same thing. So- um,
2: dehumanizing the enemy it's propaganda it's gonna rally support like i mean i can't even remember what example you gave for the civil war but like we talked about that they do it every time and then
0: yeah absolutely right i have have your book
2: laying around here jay either on combat or on killing like they literally break it down yeah Yeah, yeah, because it's like every every generation every war they get better and better and better at it like Mm -hmm. they're not slacking they're like oh shit how can we make this better every single time
0: Yeah, always. Yeah. How do we get the killing to get ramped up? And here's the ad that Sal was talking about. Angel found it, which is pretty rad. I'm going to go ahead and share that with everybody. So there it is. It's in print in English, not in German uh, to let folks know, hey, don't get on this goddamn boat. We're going to put it in the fucking uh, at the bottom of the ocean, Uh, you know, and then look at the description. Uh, intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage, are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk from the Imperial German Embassy. Okay. So they're letting you know here's the ship and I'm telling you, don't fucking use it because we're gonna put it at the uh, put it to the bottom of the sea. Um again, Sal puts it wonderfully. People think that you know, this is my favorite, and you want to talk about dehumanization. Boy oh boy. If you would have ran, I'm gonna show you it like again, we've just walked into my bailiwick here. This is kind of what I do. Look at this propaganda poster. And for those of you that are enjoying the audio portion only, it is of an ape, or a great ape with one of the pickle halba helmets that uh, the Prussians had at the beginning of the first of, of the Great War, uh, holding this helpless white lady with this blood-soaked, um, I guess it's a bat, but maybe it's a shillelagh. I don't know what the fuck it is. Uh, they've used apes for Irish people, too, by the way, when they were coming over here. But whatever, I mean... I'll let it go, at least for today. Um, but, yeah, look at this here. And then, by the way, I'd like to shout out Ray real quick. She uh, turn, uh, put me on to Life Magazine. She, this is from uh, a, a Reddit page, that it, which it has anything that you want. This one is map porn, not the porn that y'all are looking for. <laughs> this is porn that I watch, Okay. <laughs> Did this you say maps like topography map, map.
2: cartography
0: All yes right. cartography not the other kind that we hate okay not that map okay? no that don't oh we don't even recognize that as a term I didn't Thank even you. think of that yes yeah. yeah yeah but this is now like Ray pointed out poor Canada is just going to get lumped in with the barbarians <laughs> the people in Soviet Kanuckistan are fucked you are barbarians according to Life Magazine in 1916 they ran this. To remind Americans, hey, if you don't help out the British and the French, this is what's going to happen. So no fucking way. New Berlin would have been Washington D.C. Whatever, you can have it. Uh, look at uh, the Pacific Northwest into California, Japonica. I mean, we were allies with the Japanese in the first in the Great War, which is funny that they would just so happen to come over here. Um, and then, of course, the province of Mexico would be directly, because it's all about the uh, the Zimmer, the Zimmerman telegraph, uh, which was used as the excuse to catapult the United States into the war. Oh, was that the sinking of the Maine? No, that was the Spanish-American War in 1898. Oh, okay. That Never was mind. in Havana. Uh, this, uh, so there was, the Germans allegedly sent a cable to the Mexican government saying, hey. You know that huge chunk, chunk of territory that you all got your, your asses uh, handed to you over? Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, oh, okay. California, Colorado, that. Utah, Nevada. We'll help you get it back. But you got to fight along our on our side. And, apparently, and we intercepted it. Well, actually, the British intercepted it and they sat on it for a little while because they weren't sure what to do with it. It was used as a pretext. I sound like Alex Jones used as a pretext to get us into the Great War. And that's exactly what mm-hmm. happened. The truth of the matter is, is exactly what Sal said. The hundreds of billions of dollars that were sent over to the United Kingdom and the French were in peril. You're not going to be able to collect on that fucking loan when those two countries submit to Imperial Germany. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get your money back. And by the way, if you look it up, it took until this century to pay off those fucking loans, by the way. Allegedly. It took the British until, I think, 2014 to pay off. Uh, the loans from the Great War that we gave them, or that not that we, but the United States government sent over there. But this is the kind of propaganda that we're talking about here. I mean, look at this. If you don't do what we say and get into this war, like, look at where Sal's at in Florida. This is Turconia. I'm not sure what the, um, I don't know what that even means. Thank you very uh, And I don't that. know.
3: I'm kind of pissed, though, that they wanted to lump us all in, like, New Mexico, like, kind of. Yeah, how here. do they... Like, How do you think the they fuck? decided on that? Yeah, who decided that shit? Life
2: magazine, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> they even they well, gave it past the Mississippi River, too. Like the Gulf still paint. doing this. <laughs>
1: like, oh no, yeah, this-
2: it's never the strategy has never changed. It's all the same shit. It's just like a placeholder. You just take some shit out and put some new right. shit in. It's incredibly modular.
1: Like yeah, literally, like like that's a good word for it. Because, but when like, the just... fuck did
2: it start? That's what I want to know because it's like the further back you look, it's like oh, here's an example of the same thing that's happening mm-hmm. now, and you keep going and going and going and going, and it's just all the same shit.
1: Just like a couple of weeks ago, I heard someone like on on one of these news channels saying something like, "Uh, you know, Russia's not going to stop at Ukraine; they're going to come here next." And it's like, <laughs> yeah, right. And there's you know how much of a jump
2: though you're missing all of the rest of europe at that point but like, there's
1: there are people out there who are who are saying oh, and they they actually get frightened from this shit and yeah. and that's that that's what they want and uh you know Do they think maybe they're gonna like
3: in- invade alaska or something like i mean what's the where they think the russians are gonna start first i'm i'm curious <laughs>
1: Only God knows. Yeah. Only God have you knows. played
2: Modern Warfare 2? Okay, it's not that hard. <laughs> they right. have to capture
3: a satellite. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? That's and it. then they have to hack into that satellite.
0: And then look at this. Port New Orleans becomes New Hamburg. I'm sure they would be fine with that.
3: Hamburgers. Complete New adjustment hamburgers.
0: from French to uh, German. <laughs> and this is no longer the Gulf of Mexico. This is now the Gulf of Hate. It's the Gulf of Hate. Yeah. Yeah. Real, tongue, real tongue in cheek. This, this is, is lazy.
3: A real like times magazine like you're not fucking life. with me life magazine, okay. <laughs> oh, life no. magazine. And
0: well time magazine is fucking just as bad wait, look at the token to the austro-hungarian empire like the the the, the germans are just going to take the whole fucking cake except maybe a couple of slices the japanese get a small slice uh, t- uh i guess the turconia is for the ottomans that's why it says constantinople uh, right, right. Right. Now, now you're gonna be living in uh new constantinople congratulations <clears throat> okay uh, maybe all right have to rename it again and call it new Istanbul <laughs> <laughs> but look at this even the the fucking austro-hungarians who were getting their ass kicked uh they got uh baja california they got that and then it's new vienna New Vienna, come to New Vienna, which has nothing in common with the old Vienna because the new Vienna is fucking hot and tropical. Um, maybe Hitler would have gone here and painted uh, the postcard shit instead of staying over there and getting really upset. He ended up in um,
2: Brazil or Argentina. Maybe he did palm so. trees
1: really well.
0: Yeah, right. You have to palm trees instead right, right. of uh, <laughs> the cityscapes of, uh, of old Vienna. Oh, shit. Uh, that
1: was the whole thing. He misses yeah. calling. <laughs> He just needed. He just needed a change of scenery. Hey, they <laughs> just revoked
2: Kanye's honorary art degree from some fucking yeah, university yeah. too. So you know
1: what happens next?
0: We're <laughs> gonna have Black Hitler. <laughs> I I don't even know what to do with that. I don't uh, even know what to
3: do with that. Uh, does Hitler. Does Kanye do watercolors?
2: <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I <laughs> traded in my hate for Jews for palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> like George Bush painting all the fucking photos or portraits now of like all the soldiers you yeah, had right. and killed in fucking yeah. afghanistan and iraq and everybody's like oh see he's he's such a good person
3: like, doesn't it make I'm, you want to vomit it's, it's like- so fucking ridiculous like
0: and and everybody's just clapping like oh yeah what a wonderful tribute
3: like, like strange I
0: seals oh my god well I don't want to spoil any more of the book, and I'll be purchasing this book, and I know that it is on Amazon, uh, and to give everybody the actual, uh, you know, we're going to take a look at this, the title, and I'm going to put this up for folks with the screen share real quick here, okay? So it's called The American Experiment, What Your History Teacher Didn't Tell You, and it's by our friend Sal Mayweather and the forward by Brian McClanahan. How did that work out, by the way? I mean, Brian's a pretty brilliant individual.
1: I was shocked he agreed to do it. Um, he told me to send him a copy of it. I sent him a copy and he was like, Yeah, I'll do it. I'd love to do it. So I was like, I please, you know, have at it. And uh, he, he really hit the nail on the head. The forward, he talks about the Lincolnian myth and how it's central to the American experiment. And I think it sort of really ties in well with the theme of the book.
0: Wonderful. Where would you prefer folks uh, purchase this book? Would you rather them go through your website?
1: Um, you know what? I'm probably going to have them available for purchase on my website within the next week or two, but right now the only place you can get it is is Amazon for better or worse. I do intend on adding an audiobook, but I, I have to I've got the uh, the audio files completed, but I have to like edit them and stuff like that, which is a pain in the ass. So, I'm in the process of doing all that, and once that's done, you should be able to get the audiobook too
0: fantastic is there any place that we will in the future be able to receive an autographed copy of this book
1: of course i once i i'm actually once i get my author copies in i'll send i'll send one over your way
0: are you sure i i can venmo you the money i don't want you no
1: to no me. don't worry about it well, i'll, thank I'll you. yeah just, just send me your send me a good shipping address for
0: you you got it will do uh where what else uh where can we send folks to check out more of your stuff i mean I know it by heart but for those who, we have a couple of new listeners all over the world we've got a few folks from the subcontinent of india and we also i don't know how they were able to download the show but we got a new listener in russia i don't know how they're pulling it off but where there's a will there's a way where can people find you and all of your stuff
1: so i'm on social media at every one of basically all of your platforms Agoris or just sally at sally mayweather or something like that i'm not hard to find uh i'm on facebook i have my facebook page is sells gun memory which is just a more of like a firearms focused uh venture twitter at south um south agorathreads.com and 3d printer go burr those 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 are my main my main hangouts
0: fantastic before we depart i'd like to give christopher angel and brian the opportunity because uh I've asked a lot of the questions, but I I apologize. So please, Christopher, do you have anything you would like to talk about, add to anything at all? The floor is yours.
2: Uh, No, but uh, thank you for coming on the show again, Sal. And uh, I actually, I I learned quite a bit from this. So it was, it was really awesome. So thank you.
1: Thank you, brother.
0: And Brian, how about you? Uh,
2: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I never really got into the Civil War much as a kid. And I mean, they didn't really like. I would like to go back if there were any way possible to just like look at every single thing that I was taught in every grade of school and just be like, okay, now let's like redo it and see what else comes up. Because I mean, like you talked about the Articles of Confederation and it felt like we spent... I mean, we definitely mentioned it multiple times in multiple different grades, but it always was like, well, they didn't have the power to tax, so we had to get rid of it. And then it ended up being like, all better. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like, I mean, I get it. You're trying to explain something to children, so you're going to gloss over some stuff. But it's like, at the same time, it's like, okay, so now we're supposed to assume the taxation is good. And like, there was something about North v. South with like the, the railroads being different. So there was no standardization and like you couldn't get anything done. And it was all all of it is tilted toward this, like, Oh, it's much better to have the centralized top down approach to everything because then everything's the same, but it doesn't take into account that like, not only are there geographical differences, but there's cultural differences and they, I, it's pretty easy to just ignore all of that stuff, but they're like, Oh, you don't have to worry about it. Um, And then, Oh man, I feel like there was something else, but Oh yeah. And then like, anytime you talk about the civil war, it was all about slavery. If you try cause it's always like, if you try to talk about anything else, it's automatically like, you don't think it's about slavery anymore. Like you, for some reason are like slavery was no part of this is what everyone hears you saying. And it's like, no, but like it, there, there was other shit. Like you can't just say it was strictly about slavery, but like the second you say that it's like, Oh, slavery wasn't even a part of it. And it's like the duality, I guess. And I mean, I don't think that's like as much as you get angry with the people that say that, like, it's not really their fault. It's just literally what they were spoon fed for their entire education. And then most of this stuff, like, I mean, for me, it was real bad, like war on terror, uh, Middle Eastern kind of stuff, all of that conflict. Cause like, I didn't learn anything different about any of that until I went to college and it's like, well, then you have to take out a bunch of money and go into debt. And it's like, how many people are really going to do that? and uh i mean so i'm sure this is this is the book for you then oh yeah
1: because like the civil War is 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 the turning point of the american experiment but it's only one sort of aspect of it like um in the book i I start i have there's like a chapter on alexander hamilton and the articles of confederation and all stuff like that and like there's a chapter on george bush and the war on terror and obama and stuff like that so it it really i try to span Like the good and the bad, the rise, the climax, and then the falling action of the American experiment, because you have to document all of it. And like, in order to understand how we arrived at this pseudo corporate fascist police state hell that we're in, Mm -hmm. you have to understand the whole story. And it doesn't end with the Civil War. It doesn't end with the Progressive Era, World War One or Two. It's a continuing, ongoing process that's developing as we speak. So, I try to incorporate as much of it as possible.
2: You feel like it's harder to keep up with things now with just how much access there is to information. And like, I mean, the 24 hour news cycle, I don't know when that exactly started, but it's like now with everything's broken down into like a 10 second clip on like TikTok or something. And then the volume, like the quality goes down, but the volume goes way up and then you kind of just have to wade through
1: so much. Yes, but um, I had a narrative the whole time. Right. So I was like I was I was telling the story, which would sort of help me help keep me on track. OK. Um, you know, obviously, there's a million roads you can go down. But like I, I really wanted to focus on the key revisionist historical events. Obviously, there's a couple that I wasn't able to get to, like the Spanish-American War we mentioned. And, you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm somebody out there is going to mention a, a, a something that I forgot. Vietnam. That's completely <laughs> fair. <laughs> Yeah, well even that i, I swear well, you could I,
3: always do a, a part two yeah,
1: yeah right right and i did i really did um even the stuff that i that i couldn't spend a whole lot of time on i did try to like at least glance over and try to explain and sort of in passing and that includes like the vietnam war and 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 the cold war which is also super interesting shit like how like the the pacific war like sort of bled into like the vietnam war like the like the pacific world war ii like created the the precedent for the jungle warfare that led into vietnam it's just all fascinating stuff about but at the end of the day the subject matter is like bleak it's all about how politicians just call the population down
0: yeah well said and you know i a lot of times also i mean we're on the topic of the second world war i think the starting point for that war has been ignored the actual start you could go all the way back to 1936 with the full scale invasion of the japanese empire into the chinese mainland that's often overlooked not even i mean and a lot of large casualty numbers massive casualty numbers uh happen.
1: and the I mean. and and the end of the war not only the start of it which obviously Roosevelt. i think ralph rako again my favorite historian i think the way he described it was that roosevelt uh he dragged the american people kicking and screaming into world war ii again 88 percent of people according to a gallup poll were opposed to it and like that year, he started provoking the Japanese so he could care less about what the people wanted. He and the bankers and the cabal were set on war and they got it. But also at the end of the war, too, with Harry Truman and, and the dropping of the nuclear bomb. It's it, it's just, it's all we we've, we've it's all a lie. It's all a lie. We've been lied to by politicians and the political class our whole lives.
2: And they, also the need for like unconditional surrender. It seems oh, like man. we get real hung up on that and like never really questioned it. But then it's like, oh, yeah, like, why? Why can't and there if, be any terms? And like,
1: like Roosevelt's excuse was, I think he said in like 42, I got the idea of unconditional surrender from Ulysses S. Grant. That's where the U and the S came from. And it's like, it's like this man was so historically illiterate. He thought that the U.S. Grant came from a nickname he got called Unconditional Surrender Grant. That's what Franklin Roosevelt thought, which was—I <laughs> I know it sounds like a joke. But it's I know
3: I believe you. Oh <laughs> man,
1: it sounds like a joke, but um, yeah, and obviously, and yeah, all the the worst part about all of that, of course, is that like that was the excuse for the nuclear bomb, and that's that was the excuse for taking all those islands in the Pacific where American and Japanese youths had some of those vicious hand-to-hand combat fighting that the world has ever seen. Okinawa and,
0: still
2: hates like they'll oh stand man. outside the gates and protest.
1: Saipan, Cape Gloucester, uh, Peleliu, Okinawa, um, all of those islands. It was just awful, awful stuff. The bonsai charges like the, a lot of those soldiers would have like nightmares for the rest of their lives. Um iwo jima stuff like that i mean it's just just awful awful shit but it was all done in pursuit of an unconditional surrender which at the end of the war uh the the terms of the, of the surrender were we, we we pushed for an unconditional surrender because the japanese said well we'll surrender with the one condition being the preservation of the japanese em- emperor mm-hmm. and we said no 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 we're gonna push for the unconditional surrender well once we got it we let them keep the emperor anyway yeah. So it negated the need for for taking those islands, for nuking two cities. It was just all needless bloodshed done on the part of politicians, as most wars are.
0: Yeah, truly. And then, of course, you know, I have. If we're gonna finish off with the Second World War, I have to point out that uh, more people died during the firebombing of Dresden than died. In the nuclear detonations over hiroshima and nagasaki which is uh, a war crime by the way not that all that all of this was a war crime but specifically dresden being an open city with no military uh youth. for no reason yeah it's just uh, no reason and uh once again uh the angel over my shoulder mr vonnegut survived the firebombing of dresden by being locked up in slaughterhouse number five and he documents it in the book also called a children's crusade uh, and made him vehemently anti-war, vehemently anti-war, because he saw it, and uh, he saw the direct. He, you know, he was the one who had to shovel out the charred corpses of families in their homes uh, as a prisoner of war, and the aftermath of like literal fire tornadoes that ran through that city. Um, it's just that it, it, it's all it's so horrible. And again, another book that I would plug, of course, is uh, *Democracy: The God That Failed* by Hans Hermann Hoppe. Uh, where he actually documents – a lot of people think that warfare has gotten a lot more uh, noble and humane uh, as time has progressed. But here's the problem. If you look back at mass casualty, fielding an army of 20,000 people, uh, soldiers, was such an expensive proposition that it happened very rarely. It's only after the Napoleonic uh, era, after the French Revolution, which was the first fascist or communist revolution, depending on your perspective – um, that uh, you see these massive, uh, all, the, the entire country contributes to the army as opposed to the prince or the king begging for money to try to finance this ridiculous operation. And well, now you, they don't have to beg. Now they don't have to beg. They could just take, 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 take. By or, the way, just print. Yeah, or, or just prince. Yeah, or just, Sal, I want to show you the kind of company you keep on my bookshelf here. Okay, Uh-oh. so well, a couple of these you're going to like, a couple of these, and one of these I know you're not going to like, okay? But we got to keep the balance here. It's the light <laughs> and the dark. The fact and the fiction. I like it. First, I have to tell you, uh, this is a great author right here. This is John Mosier. This is The Myth of the Great War. It's a fantastic book about actually how it was going versus what the propaganda was telling the people and how the Germans actually were chewing up the French meter by meter, quote, end quote, as they were moving westward. So this is a great book. Another one. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Classic. Yes, it's classic. And, of course, everybody knows this one because he's been hawking it. he now has a new book. And this, of course, is The Anarchist Handbook by Mr. Malice. And this was back in my day when I was friendly with the uh, Center for uh, (laughs) the 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 C4SS, Anarchy and Democracy. I believe Brian also has a copy (laughs) of this book uh before um you know the stateless society and everybody that was you know we're not yeah, there it is I have, I have like all these laying around but this one's right on by the, the way seats. at the end of the shelf you are separated from this book sal because i can't have a fire started on my bookshelf
1: Uh oh. Uh <laughs> keep it for reference though we keep it for oh, reference yeah. so we can yeah. cite why they're wrong
0: what i i couldn't agree with you more um, Angel, do you have anything for our guests before we part company?
3: I was just going to ask you, how long did it take you to research um, these individual, well, like collective, but also individual topics and took tie the them whole thing, together?
1: The whole thing took about a year. I had the narrative in my head before I started. Like, I knew what I was going to write, the, the story I was going to tell. But then, like, you still want to know your shit. You want to know the specifics and you have to, like, know what you're talking about. So that process still... After having my narrative, still took about a year. It was a lot of work. It was, it was a lot of work. Yeah. going to this one,
3: it's a lot of work when you're when you're doing research and you're trying to put things together. Um, like I said, I do genealogy and trying to match things up and then keeping you know things straight and you yeah, know, like trying to you know uh translate Hebrew with Google Translate and Microsoft Word. Oh, forget and, it. You know, so like it takes, you know, it takes time and um, it does take a lot of effort when you're trying to do a topic. So I can appreciate that. Like
1: each one of the topics in the book, I think I probably, I must have, I mean, I went to school for a lot of this shit. So I kind of knew which direction I was, which books I had to read and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. I still went back and reread a lot of it. And I probably, I would say I probably did about like five to 10 books per topic just for like basic like research just to get through the book. So it, it was a heavy load. It was a heavy load. But I think that the book came out well. I think like the first, th- there's a there's two quick chapters in the beginning on Greece and Rome, I think. But like it's sort of, I don't know, it might sort of put readers off because they're expecting American history. But boom, I hit you with like 30 or 40 or 50 pages, whatever it is of like Greco-Roman history. But I think it's necessary to tell the story of where the where the American experiment comes from and how and how and why it is an experiment so yeah. you know that was sort of a topic that I was um not as well versed on as uh American history so I, I spent some more time going through you know I read Tacitus Annals and and reread some of my old Socrates and, and Plato and stuff like that which I, don't, I I love doing this shit so it's like you know it was no it was no problem to me
0: right it's a labor of love that's right a, right huge difference and uh from it's a one... story that
1: no one has told and i think that it's important that people hear it so i'm glad that it, it's it, it's done i'm glad that i got it out there sure. and now when someone's like what do you mean pearl harbor is a lie what do you mean so i'm like you know what here's the book you
3: you go come back it.
1: to me and mm-hmm. tell me why you know tell me <laughs> what you think
0: no i uh, from one academic to another um i can totally appreciate the kind of research that the uh, that you put in and the fact and i have uh, you know of course we're, we're pals but on top of that you're a published author once again which to me is a, one hell of an accomplishment as someone who loves to stick his face in books all day long and read and I'm kind of a nerd like that, as you well know. All I do—you'll like
1: read. this one, yeah. Oh, no, I'm this sure. one's right up your alley. You'll 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 appreciate this.
0: Oh, I'm 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 giddy uh, with yeah. excitement to check it out. That's for sure. And also the important part, and I encourage our audience to purchase the book and uh, support like-minded individuals in your work because this is important. Because even if you you know the book is not going to be that expensive, but the knowledge that you're going to gain from it, and perhaps loan it out to somebody who has no idea, and it's not not ignorant in a negative connotation or context, but ignorance in a sense. They have no idea that this stuff that they've been told for the majority, it's, it's hard. It's hard for folks to confront facts when all they've been fed is lies their entire life. It's really tough for people to do that. But, but how do get, you also know what to put your faith in too when
2: everything's a bunch of lies? Absolutely. I know. It's earthshed. That's
1: the hard part. Yeah. That's why it's so important that people actually look at the primary sources. And and they don't just take their public school teacher's word for it or their college history professor, you know, who's trying to get tenure or something like that. You actually have to go back and read it for yourself. like, And learn learn how to read it because it's
2: fucking hard.
3: (laughs) I just remember being in history class, like, and the history book was probably like, you know, this thick, maybe a little bit shorter, somewhere around there. I mean, it was huge. It was heavy. And I I just remember, like certain chapters like we never even got to and we'd be on one chapter and then we'd skip to like you know say we were on chapter like eight then we'd be on chapter 25 and i'm like but don't you read chapter by chapter for books like? But the school year is only so around? long, and we only have so
2: much money, and like this levy's got to right. fucking pass, and right. like uh yeah. Like, but
1: even those chapters, even those chapters were written and and controlled by state curricula advisors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it, it's all it's all it's all it's all a lie. It's all nonsense. Um, you know, I think like Jay mentioned earlier, like you'll get a different version in some schools down south still depending on the teacher but even that is you know slowly withering away and dying out and like you know even even in the south or like the yankee narrative is being taught more so than the southern narrative but um i don't know hopefully hopefully the book reaches somebody who was like you know thinking you know, it's like, wow, I didn't know this stuff is true. But to me, it's like, when you read, when you go back and read the primary sources, it smacks you in the face. Like you're like, like you read, um, I, there's a, a one, There's a woman I quote who survived the siege of Vicksburg. And it's like, I know you guys want to wrap up. I'll keep it quick, but it's no, like- No, no,
0: go right ahead.
1: But like,
0: what these people
1: say is so horrific. And it's so contrary to what we've been told, how we're supposed to lionize and treat as, as heroes and gods th- these people. But in reality, the memoirs that people on the ground who lived through it are writing is the complete opposite. Or like the memoirs of the people who fought in World War II on the Pacific Islands. Um, there's a great book called With the Old Breed at Peleliu in Okinawa by... Uh, gene sledge who fought on both of those islands and it's like it just you have to just shake your head in amazement and to think that politicians would subject other people's children to that is just astonishing to me and it's just we don't learn that shit we, we are not taught that aspect of it we are taught the glory of war and how evil the bad guys were and how how you know how great to hear the martyrs were and, and it's all america 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 but you're not taught about the kid who got his dick blown off or the japanese guy who who shoved his dick into his mouth and took a picture and you're not taught that shit. you're not if taught you, about the, the the mortar rounds going off and, and hitting the little girl in in the chest you do you don't hear about the kid who stepped on the the, the grenade they don't teach you that shit in school in fact, they purposely withhold that information from you so that you will sort of partake in the glorification of the, of the calling, of the, of the murder. You would love, have you ever read Jarhead
2: by Anthony Swafford? I haven't. So it's not an incredibly long book and it's on audiobook on Audible as well, but he was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps and it was the Gulf War. And he talks to Anthony Swafford. And there's, yeah and it's also a movie with jake gyllenhaal pretty good honestly the movie is really good but like they have to condense so much shit like the book's way better but he even kind of talks about like what you are saying with like the glorification of war and how even uh like oliver stone and stanley kubrick and uh I'm trying to think of any other direct like directors that made like anti-war films specifically. I, I want to say he focused mostly on Vietnam era kind of stuff. Cause that was like the last great conflict before the Gulf war where he was sent over. But he talks about how before they were deployed, like they all sat in a room and watched every single war movie they could find. And it's like they if people even picked up on the fact that these movies were made, To show how horrible it is that you turn youth into killers and then you unleash those killers onto the world and then bring them back if they're lucky enough to make it like they didn't even if they were aware of that and that it's supposed to be an anti-war film like no one there that was about to get sent over cared like they wanted to go be the characters in those movies because even though the movie should stand on its own and speak for itself like they don't like i remember even when uh, it was before I went to boot camp, like my favorite movie was Full Metal Jacket. And it was like everybody always emphasized the first, not even half of that movie, when it's like, oh, you're at boot camp and like all this funny shit's happening. And it's like objectively horrible, but like you romanticized it to the point that you're like, oh, I'm gonna go do that. This is going to happen to me. I'm going to know what it's like. But then you watch the second half of that movie and it's like, oh, fuck. But like, whatever, like I'll have the training. I'll know what to do if that ever happens. And it never ended up happening for me. Thank God. But like, I'll go back and I rewatch that shit now. And I'm like, I cannot believe that they had me excited for this because like I'd watch it with like my normal friends and family and they'd be like, you want to go do this stuff? And I'm like, why do you not? This shit looks fucking awesome. And like I was a smart kid, <laughs> like I mean in public school, so who knows? But like I ate it, I ate that shit up like there was no tomorrow. And then now it's like it's so bad that even though I know it's all bullshit, there's still some part of me that it's like, I know they got they have real estate inside my head still. Like they did such a good job that even though I know what I know now, there's still part of you that's like, but you still kind of like it. Like you still right, kind of. Right would have known what it was truly like even though it would have been horrible like and that's another line because like i don't i don't want to spoil too much of the book or the story or anything but like this guy swafford's fucking brilliant like it's funny he was reading Camus. like in the it's it's fucking weird how it all connects but he talks about how he underwent basically the Hardest, cruelest training there was at the time available to anybody in the military to become one of the most elite members of an elite unit. And he never actually, like, he's in combat multiple times, but never actually kills anybody. And there's a part of him that, like, it's almost like the I want to know if I could have handled it or if I could have done what I was trained to do. But then the other half of his brain is like, You are so lucky that that never happened to you because you would have ended up coming home and. Being a worse alcoholic, or you would have one hundred percent killed yourself. And like that's the duality in his brain the entire time is like he knows there's this part of him that he's supposed to be mm-hmm. because of what he was trained to do, and then there's the other part of him that is a human. That's like I know all of that shit is horrible, and he's constantly trying to reconcile these two things. It's a spectacular book. But it's funny. Of
1: po- politicians me. they they love war, but they saw them go and fight them themselves.
0: Oh, never yeah it's been a long time since that happened that's for sure and as much as uh as much as I'm not I wouldn't consider myself a monarchist if you went back several hundred years at least you saw a little bit of that like even Oliver Cromwell who was a uh, a war criminal and a genocidal maniac even he led the new model army out onto the battlefield uh you will not see. Uh, Comrade Trump, or no. or the degenerate that needs the Easter Bunny to handle him uh, out there, because yeah, I mean he couldn't find the bathroom, let alone the he'd be
1: going the wrong direction, buddy. Yes. He'd be attacking America. Yeah.
0: Come on, man, <laughs> Scranton, um, this way, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, lady, gentlemen, uh, Angel, do you have anything else? Uh, since you're the boss, I don't. Okay, thank you for asking. Sure thing. <laughs> uh i'd like to thank uh, of course uh, all of us our friends here uh for uh being on the show and sal as always um i we i genuinely appreciate you love you pal i'm so happy for thanks you thanks for having me guys oh it's it's our it's I our pleasure it. it's our pleasure and um I hope that we can reach some more folks with the truth and at least, and even if they're not convinced right now, but at least read and make their own decision about what, having all of the information available to them, uh, that's the beauty of it. So um, with that being said, thank you once again. I would also like to thank our sponsors, AgorasNexus.com, Vandalay Industries, iPaint Akron, Uh, Team Mandalore, who keeps cycling very weird. And of course, Ray Faba, fine art and design from the Great Lakes. But ladies and gentlemen, I know that you're waiting for this particular ad. Uh, Christmas is coming. And if you want to do any coming yourself, let me tell you what. You're not going to be able to do it with the way you smell right now, okay? It's getting a little bit cold out there. Maybe you're neglecting the shower because you get out of the shower. Unless you live in Florida, like our friend Sal does up here in the north, it's gotten a little bit nipply out there. And you're like, It's still like it. 50 degrees. Today it was 31. <laughs> uh but uh yeah, nice try. But uh if you <laughs> if you want to get down and get into that business and the dung ditch, as my friend Christopher likes to say, you really want to have at it. Todd's Gay Soap from Akron Apothecary will keep you clean. It is a non-discriminating soap, fentanyl-free for your supple ass from gay hands to make sure that you are clean for the holidays. Hanukkah, I'm sorry for some of you who don't like that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying here. Uh, But uh, Kanye's not going to be doing anything this Monday. However, I will be. And I need to smell fresh for the first night of Hanukkah. Why? Because I'm not a scumbag. And I appreciate a good-smelling ass, and so should you check out <laughs> AkronApothecary.com because Todd's Gay Soap is...
1: Ooh, oh for
0: that stank ass. Yeah. <laughs> Sal, thank you very much, brother. I love you, man. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Bye.
3: Bye.